Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. So Dave and Rob, tell us a bit about yourselves and what the Back Pain Podcast is all about. Hey, thanks for having us. Um, so my name's Rob. Um, I'm a chiropractor from England. As you can probably tell by our accents, we're both both from England. Um, we started the podcast a year and a half ago, um, now just aimed at patients, just trying to bust some myths, improve kind of the general knowledge around back pain, really. That's it. It was the, the conversations. Hi, I'm Dave, by the way, also a chiro from the UK. Um, the idea was it was the conversations we were having in the treatment rooms every day with patients, how we could get that out on a macro scale. How can we talk to hundreds of thousands of people all at once rather than just one on one, one to many instead? Uh, it just grew from there. Yeah. Now, before before we get into, I guess, actually, I'll introduce myself first because I don't want to go into a huge segue and forget to come back. I'm Brandon, also known as Parker. I'm, I'm a chiropractic student about to graduate within the next couple months here. And uh, I'm, I'm loving the opportunity to talk to two people that's been out in the force and, and from a different country, nonetheless. So I'd love to see the differences between us. Yeah, yeah and I'm Raul. I'm the same thing as Parker, just with a different name. Cairo student, graduating in December. Strength coach, that's, that's all there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much for having us. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, thank you. Now, I, I would love to just kind of rehash what we were talking about off air, because I feel like that's going to be a great uh, topic to start off with, because I would love to know about both of your schooling. Because not only is it from a different country, but you mentioned that you guys didn't even have like subluxation really thrown into your face. However, Raul and I's experience, it was the first thing we talked about and it's still heavily dominated in our um, our schooling. So I think for, for the UK, certainly um, the majority of schooling is very mechanical based. Uh, which is fantastic because we're very mechanical-based chiropractors. Um, it's evidence-based and led. Um, and the, the subluxation or the, the historical component, what I would now call historical, Some for some it's very much the here and now, but for me the historical side of, of uh, what used to happen wasn't necessarily brought up. It may have been brought up in that context. This is what used to happen. This is used, used to be the narrative we used. However, now we know better. Here's what we now know, and here's the effects that we're having. Um, and that was very much at the forefront. So it was something that almost just didn't really pass us by. And if it did, it, it was very much in the rearview mirror, a, a cliff note, if you like, or a side note to what used to happen in, in the profession. Like I'm sure at some point when doctors are in uni, they learned that at one point they used to put leeches on people's bumholes to, I don't know, make their colds go away. Now we don't do that as often, if, unless we really like to. Um, so, <laughs> so it was that kind of like side note, you know, well, that used to happen, but not anymore. So here we go. Um, so, so I think it wasn't really in our vernacular and certainly wasn't on our horizon until we actually got out into the profession and started to do different um, courses from people outside of the UK. And that, that's when it really started to become noticeable or um, uh, we're that old guys that this is when like, you know, Facebook was just sort of growing. So then we, we liked something on Facebook from abroad and, and um, uh, you, you know, you'd see a different point of view and then it kind of became a lot more apparent. Um, 
but what we yeah when you're in the safe walls of a uk university it's um it's all pretty straight down the middle yeah yeah i remember i remember we had the only kind of term that people spoke about were kind of people called them like wellness practices i remember someone saying they wanted to work in a wellness practice and it wasn't all we kind of all i remember being aware of was that what we called it like a high volume type practice. So it'd be practices where they sign people up to a hundred treatments at once, you know, that sort of thing. And there was a couple of those in the UK. People might refer to it as like the American model, that type of thing, but they wasn't really kind of the subluxation type thing wasn't really a part of it. And I remember going to a job interview and they asked me, they said, how do you feel about using subluxation? The, the term subluxation. And I kind of thought, I don't really know. I don't really know what it is. Like, I, it wasn't really a thing. You know, it was like someone, I said, as we said off air, it was like, someone mentioned a Harry Potter spell and we just kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, so I, I knew kind of nothing about it. And then, and then it kind of, you know, became the divide between, yes, you've got these high volume type practices. Then you've also got the very heavy, like the vitalistic type subluxation practices. And then you've got kind of us, I guess, and you guys, you know, which are kind of all along the same, on the same, on the same channel. The American model. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> all your yeah. <laughs> i think it's the insurance model. i think it's yeah. i think it stems from the insurance model you know when you know you you obviously have the insurance and then cash-based practices ours are at you know 95 percent cash-based in terms of yes we do have insurances but insurance companies might give you eight treatments might give you 12 treatments might give you you know 12 sessions of rehab something like that they're not going to give you 72 you know plus mm. re-evaluations and all the other stuff so you know, here, if you're trying to sell that to someone, which some people, you know, unfortunately do, being parting with whole, cold, hard cash for five and a half thousand pounds is quite a lot of money and people won't do it. You know, English and notorious for being a little bit, a little bit tight fisted sometimes. With, with <laughs> we their, don't pay for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you might account for why it's um, a bit of an Australian model as well, actually. Uh, again, when, when you're looking at these influences in that vitalistic sphere, it's Australia and America that seems to come up a lot. I know Australia have a similar, um, if not, it's not directly the same, I know, but a similar um, insurance-based model as well. Perhaps it, it fits very well into that. With, with uh, I mean, this this model is definitely flourishing here because a lot of people have the thought process like, I am paying all this money for insurance, I'm going to use it. And they don't really think about how gluttonous it is and how ineffective it is. Um, you know, then that leads to all of us who plan to be cash-based or who are cash-based have like somewhat of like an elevator pitch. And I'm curious, like, you know, what is your quote-unquote elevator pitch to kind of explain like, look, we're not going to be utilizing your insurance, but this is not only the most cost effective, but also the most effective. Oh, so I mean, for us, it's, it's actually like Rob said, it's probably 95% people wouldn't have health insurance, you know, 5% of people may have health insurance. So most people walk through the door expecting to pay. It's expected as a private service. So there's not that that necessity for an elevator pitch in, in that kind of way that people walk in the door and expect to hand over the credit card. Mm. Wow. Well, the UK and the US are completely different. <laughs> C completely. And it, I feel sorry mm. for, you know, for so much of that, you know, it's, and as, said, as Dave said, people would expect to. So people will come to ex and come to see us expecting. Pre I mean, yes, you'll get some people who are expecting to walk in and walk out in one session and be fixed, but that's mm -hmm. the few and far between. And, you know, so people are expecting to come and see you a few times and we know we i use the analogy of going to see a personal trainer quite a lot you know that's a good thing you know it's, if you went to the gym tomorrow you know you wouldn't walk out looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger these things take time you know so 
we're there to guide you along that journey. We're not there to fix you. We're not there to put things back into place. We're just there to guide you and make sure you're doing things. We have certain check-ins along the way. That might be a phone call. It might be an email. It might be a Zoom call. It might be an in-person appointment as well, where we do a little bit more hands-on as well. You know, So we're completely adaptable and changeable in that. And it's all very individual. So it's not this kind of cookie-cutter, everybody has eight sessions when they walk through the door. Some people will do, some people won't. Some people might just have one session and go on their way and then follow up with a phone call in two weeks. So it's very kind of different in that. And I know that some people will be very different to that and they might not like that approach. And they would also call themselves very kind of evidence-based, but they will still be doing a lot more. You need to have this from a business model perspective, but you know, it's, that's my approach, I guess. It's slightly different and it's, it's worked, it's worked okay for us so far, I guess. That's see, that's just like almost like a culture shock over here. Like, you know, I'm already so ready to persuade them not to utilize the thing that they came in ready to utilize. Right. Um, I, I'm curious because, you know, we, so that's a drastic difference. But what what about are, are you having patients still come in with like huge nocebic narratives that you have to combat? 100 percent. Um, and I think that's something that we've spoken a lot about on our podcast. Uh, and this is why we start one of the reasons we started it because of what we would say would be lazy healthcare professionals who they've seen before using things like that bone out of place model or you know this joint just needs to be realigned or your pelvis has gone out of place and you know th those familiar narratives those not that nocebic language that gets peddled around a lot and that's also not just healthcare professionals that might be personal trainers that might be other people as well who've used this type of terminology and i think all of those people know that nothing has gone out of place. They understand that this joint hasn't dislocated, but they're using that kind of lazy language rather than explain what's actually happening when they're doing something like a manipulation or they're doing some kind of hands-on you know, muscle work, whatever it might be. So it's just that, but then that's kind of filtered down. So then when you have these patients who walked in and they say, oh, I think my, my pelvis is out, you know, and from their perspective, you know, it's important not to diminish that because Firstly, it does feel like that. We've all had some kind of pain or some discomfort. And, you know, I can attest that it does feel like something's not quite sitting right. You know, I know mm -hmm. enough that it, it it is, but it does feel that way. And then if someone's in your previous experience done, a, you know, manipulation or an adjustment, that sort of thing, so you say your lower back and you've heard a big clunk and then you've had a, you know, reduction in pain, then, mm -hmm. you know, what, how would you know otherwise? So, when these patients come to me and they say, oh, I've had this back pain every 15 years or every year for 30 years and every year it goes, my pelvis goes out, I see a chiropractor, an osteopath, a physio, and they realign it and I'm good to go. You know, And I think it's a really difficult patient to manage. And I think very quickly you can belittle them by just saying it, it doesn't work like that. And that, so it's really important to not, um, to not diminish that understanding of their problem and then to kind of approach it. So I see it as you know, meeting the patient where they're at. And kind of saying, okay, yep, so we can do some of that, you know, and although it might not be my first choice if they had never had that treatment before, I can do a bit of what they want in order to kind of gain that rapport. And we know how important rapport is for kind of good patient outcomes. And then doing a bit of what they want, getting them on their side, getting that, you know, short term reduction in pain, which if their beliefs are so strong around that, you know, it's probably going to happen. And then you can then use that pain reduction to then facilitate another approach, or you can use that rapport to then chat about other things. Whereas if you say, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. I don't do that. And I know some people who have that approach and that's also fine. They kind of take a different approach. If they say, no, nah, no, nah, I don't do that. Then that patient, in my opinion, is quite likely they might go somewhere else. They might go down the road to someone else who doesn't have that time to 
chat to the patient and to you know you know actually explain what's happening around manual therapy or around you know strength work or rehab they might not have that time or or care really so mm -hmm. that's kind of my approach and we're you know we have to start somewhere to kind of break down these barriers and this vernacular that's been thrown around for the last you know 20 30 40 60 years mm -hmm. go ahead <laughs> what I was going to say is, is, is like, I'm glad that you really, you know, you wrapped it up perfectly. Cause I, you know, there's some cases where exactly somebody would come in and they'll say like, Oh, my hips are out of place. And then, you know, every time I come in here, doc looks at my heels, you know, and it's just like, I can't just like, all right, you've been doing this for years. You are dead set on, this is what helps you. I'm going to go play the game. I'm going to go like, while you're prone, I'm, I'm going to go stare at your heels and just go, Oh yeah, it looks good just because they need that they need that now you're building the rapport and now you can actually start building towards something that's actually meaningful and and i, I wanted to ask that's like where because that's kind of like the gray area right like we know yeah. that this is not an effective thing to do but they believe it's effective so we have to find that that fine balance of now that you trust me and now that i can educate you uh we can start doing things that are effective and and that's what i was thinking about when you talked about building that rapport I find myself when I'm doing manual therapy or something that uh, may not be the most effective when compared to like exercise, I have this window of opportunity to they have their guard down. Now we can start unloading some things or unpacking some things. A prime example of that is I had a patient come to see me once who was an American chap and he came, came in to see me with knee pain. And this is probably my third or fourth ever new patient uh, since I after I graduated. And he came to see me, he had knee pain. And he said, yeah, I think, yeah, my, this happens to my knee occasionally and I had a look at it and I, you know, it, it was pretty much a degenerative meniscus tear. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a meniscal tear. Let's get some imaging on it. Let's do that. And he was like, oh, but you haven't, you haven't looked at my lower back. And I was like, but you, you came in to see me with your, with your knee and, you know, you had this injury. It's a traumatic problem. And he kind of went, yeah, but you're a chiropractor. And I kind of, I remember thinking, I don't really understand what this guy wants, you know, in terms of that. And obviously he was coming from this model where any problem stems from, you know, your spine. And, you know, he obviously see a chiropractor who, whether he had, you know, plantar fasciopathy or, you know, tennis elbow, they would have adjusted him, you know, head, head to toe. And that was his, his understanding of it. So then when I didn't, you know, really even look at his lower back and just kind of said, this is this and let's get some imaging on it and let's do some whatever. I can't even remember what I, so I recommended this for 10 years ago. He was a bit kind of put out and that was kind of a, a quite a steep learning curve for me kind of i didn't really ask the right questions i didn't really come in properly <clears> with that Dave. yeah i mean as well we're blaming a lot of therapists here but the especially in the uk it might be the same way over for you guys the common vernacular is i put my back out you know oh my next uh, out or uh, i've put my back out like that's that's the simplest term that you're going to hear from when you're first cognizant of you know people with pain um so we we've got to take that time like rob said we can't do on that first session and say <laughs> no you're wrong hips don't go out of place i'll tell you why mate because actually although we think we're doing right we're gonna piss that person off they're gonna think well actually you know i've always been told this so if someone they've just met and they don't have that rapport and that trust with you're probably actually gonna not do any good um, but yeah, if you take that time and give the explanation, I know it feels like it's out. It's actually because of this and it's the spasmodic um, uh, muscle around it. And then it, therefore it feels like it's working differently. It's actually not. Now that can then over a short period of time create such a better effect and such a better outcome in that patient. Um, but you've got to kind of 
like I said, go with them at the start and say, yep, oh, it feels like it's out. Okay. Even though inside we're saying it's not really out. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough one to navigate. There's no way around it. But I think over the long term, you can explain, look, it's because we, it's, it's an easy way of explaining it. But hey, look, here's what we say now. Um, I think with that extra bit of time, you can educate and update and, and sort of, uh, without using the phrase wrongly, realign uh, that mm. person's thought process so much easier. Yeah, and, and I think you'll get a lot more of a, um, uh, a, a positive response from that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Some something that I've learned really fast was, because if you asked me two years ago, I was a guy to them like, no, hips don't go out of place, but we know that doesn't help. But um, I still give them the manual therapy. But when they come with those misconceptions, I just ask them why. And nine times out of 10, they don't even know why they believe <laughs> what they believe. And there I have like the, uh, the, door, the, the door gets open for me to educate them by just asking a simple question. So why do you think that's out of place? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's helped a lot and it's a simple thing that everybody can do. Love yeah. that. Yeah. That's it. Just a, just a little nugget in the back of their brain that they heard the postman say, or, you know, they saw on a TV program or a bloody advert for Nurofen or I don't know, for you guys, OxyContin. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, that, that's right. Sometimes it's in there. We don't even know why that, that preconception is mm. in, inside of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, I think that's the perfect segue where they, they hear something, right? And it kind of gets like seeded into their mind and then it can perpetuate and it could actually create fear avoidance, right? And I would love to ask somebody that's been in the field as long as both of you has been is when is the right time to actually un unpack and confront those thoughts? And how do you go about it? I know some people will say like, oh, you're, you're scared to flex your spine, but you're in a slumped posture right now. You're in the same position that you were scared to be in prior, you know, but that could actually be read as like, you're, you're, you're making me look like an idiot right now, that type of thing. So how do y'all go about unpacking the fear avoidance that they may have, it may have grown from something they've heard in the past? I think exactly as Dave said, it, it often starts from that knowledge and especially with something like a flex spine and you could probably put posture into that kind of category as well is that these often have stemmed not just from pain, but kind of from societal expectations. You know, we, it, it looks good to sit up straight and it's very aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, we, we think about our, you know, picture of elegance and beauty from being up tall and perfect. We don't think of kind of hunched over, you know, and it, it's got that air of confidence. So lots of things come from it. And I think it's bigger than just kind of just pain. My personal approach is, is a bit like Raul said, is kind of asking them why they believe something at the beginning. And mm -hmm. that then determines how quickly you want to do it. Because there's sessions when I've spent an hour chatting to someone about this on session one, and the sessions when it's taken me, you know, weeks or months to kind of unpack a little bit further. But often, what I will say to people is that, you know, the spine is meant to bend and lift, you know, and I use any other joint analogy, you know, if you injured your elbow, would you not bend it again? You know, and I might say in a slightly different you know, kind of diff different way, but talking about, you know, if, if it was any other body part, you wouldn't not bend it again. And then understandably, if you then try to lift a heavy shopping bag after never bending your elbow for the last 15 years, it would probably wouldn't feel that comfortable. So that's why bending feels a bit uncomfortable now. So then I start to unpack it with a bit of movement. So I'll often do other movements that flex the spine that the patient might not quite be aware of. Something like a supine, bring both knees up towards your chest or like a cobra type position or just a seated slumps and sitting up, 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 you know, sitting down, sitting up tall again and ask them, how does that feel? And how does that feel when you repeat it? You know, what do you think is happening in that? And then kind of unpack that a bit more. And then that 
you know, extrapolate to asking them. You're trying to get that light bulb moment. You know, what mm-hmm. happens when you put your shoes on? You know, do, do you flex your spine then or do you keep it straight? What happens when you, you pick up that golf ball from the hole? You know, what do you think is happening to your spine? You know, and we know now that you can't really keep a neutral spine, even when you're trying to, even in advance, people that have done this for years really can't keep a neutral spine. So the spine's pretty much bending and loading under, you know, most movements we do anyway. Uh, I mean, that might be a, a bit more advanced for a lot of people to kind of un- understand long term, but sorry, in the short term. But yeah, kind of unpacking that and then getting them to realize that if they do this movement, actually nothing bad happens. And you'll sometimes see them go, oh, I've done that. And I've been avoiding this movement for 20 years. You know, I had a lady a few weeks ago, I'll say a few, weeks, a few months ago, probably now, who she'd hurt her back doing ballet when she was about 15 and she was now 65, 70. And a GP at the time, her, her like primary care doctor had told her to never lift anything heavier than a bag of shopping. And she had never done it. So she, as soon as her kids got to like six months, she stopped lifting them, you know, because she said, oh, it's bad. I've got a back problem. I've got a you know, back injury. You know, that was her, that was her belief. And, you know, obviously that's going to take a long time to unpack. And I think there'll be a part element where you'll never really kind of unpack that fully, but, you know, it, it, it works. We've got, we've got her doing some seated deadlifts, you know, that type of thing, which right. is which is really cool to see someone that terrified of bending can now bend over and pick up a kettlebell. It's, it's cool. Hmm. I, I've, I've, I've got I've to told... agree with Rob. Sorry, Ryan. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I wouldn't say, uh, I'd say exactly the same as Rob because I think I stole it off of him about eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So very, very similar. I think Rob hit the nail on the head there at the end of, of, getting someone to adapt and sort of bringing it into their world a bit as well. So uh, rather than just, okay, well, we've got to be able to lift this kettlebell because it's good to lift kettlebells. We know you need to be strong. Yeah. Okay. Well, once your baby is over six months, we're going to need to lift it. Right. So let's, let's do kettlebell lifts because that's going to be your child. Um, whether it's that, or, you know, you want to play with the grandkids or you want to be able to tie a shoe or go to the toilet. These are all things that they can do. Whereas, uh, sometimes we forget to relate the exercise to the life bit, which I think is where the magic happens. Cause when they know that that bird dog is stability, um, theoretically anyway, or, or at least, uh, um, uh, muscular balance stability, um, so that when they're stepping off a curb outside of Walmart, um, actually that's quite useful to have, or if they're spinning around with a trolley, that's a super useful, um, uh, time to have a, um, a good trunk stability, let's say, uh, rather than when you need it, cause you want to mask your spine straight in the center, you know, you, you've got to be able to translate that to their life. And I think they'll take that on board. Yeah. I like that a lot. Uh, I, and, and I think that's the most underrated tool to do. Is, is rooting everything into a, a goal, you know, everybody's just like, let's get better, stronger and all that. But it's not like, why would I want to do that? But like, if you want to pick up your kid, you're definitely going to want to do that now. Hmm. What are you going to say, Roel? Yeah, it was out of topic. Um, But now that we're talking about back pain and all of that good stuff, uh, both of you are technically the three of you are back pain ex- experts. And I always ask myself, so why do you guys think people catastrophize more over spine pain than over any other type of pain? Because, for example, you see people at the gym, they get hurt doing squats, they hurt their knee. Nine times out of ten, they probably don't catastrophize. They feel okay because it'll get better. But then you see them doing deadlifts and they have shooting pain in their back and they're like, oh, my gosh, I can never deadlift again. So why do you guys think that's a thing like worldwide? 
That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, for me, I think one of the biggest things, I mean, there'll be a, a huge society thing or societal thing where it's, um, uh, you know, don't hurt your back. For me, I think it's because we can't see it. I, th- I think that's one of the biggest things. We can't, it's harder to conceptualize what's happening with pain when we can't see the joint swelling, but then going down and getting a bit better. We can see gradual movement with let's take the knee if you're squatting you'll see it big hot red swollen let's say you've you've caused some ligamentous damage maybe or, or meniscal you'll see that bad boy swell up you'll notice your um uh, decrease in range of motion wicked but then you'll see the reverse effects of that as well and you can poke it and feel it and you can notice it whereas often with the with the spine look let's face it we've, we've got uh, a multitude of joints all compact into one area so actually you might still be able to move but still get pain. So whereas the knee, you can see that one joint is not moving well. Therefore, that's where the pain is. Whereas with the back, we could move. And if L4, 5 uh, angry at you that day, L3, 4 is trying to take all the movement. It's hard to conceptualize. Well, why is that painful? But I can still move. And I think a big part of it is you just can't see it. Uh, it's hard to know what's going on when you can't physically look at it and see that is the problem area. It's getting better, though. It's not as swollen anymore. It's not as red. Therefore, I should probably get on with a little bit of squatting like a proper human, um, comparative to the knee or the ankle or elbow or, or anything else. Um, yeah, Rob. And I think also it is bloody painful. And I think that, you know, anyone that we've seen in terms of pain levels, you know, when that acute sciatica is, you know, we've seen patients, you know, in more pain than I've ever cared to imagine. You know, I've, you know, on par, I had a kidney stone once and, you know, I was about the level of pain that I've seen some of my patients in, you know, with acute sciatica, you know, our, our partners going through labor, you know, that's probably similar pain levels to people coming in through the door with really, really acute sciatica from mm-hmm. the talking to them and kind of understanding it. So I think that that a, yes, it really, really hurts. Then also you probably have heard stories of people being in that much pain. And like I've just said, people have stories of, you know, slipping a disc is just as painful as labor, you know, and they, these kind of, your stories perpetuate and back pain once it's there it'll be there for life you know mm. again these other things which get filtered down from 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 years and years and years or once you've hurt your back it will never go away or the back's now weak and we get often these stories so that's another big part of it so those a it's painful and also those beliefs then Jack, probably catastrophize Jack. that more yeah. than more than another body part but i like the not you can't see it that's, i never considered that that's a really good one Mm. it's mysterious right oh back pain Ooh. it's a great point you know when it comes to the like you know if you think about a radiculopathy right you have the the traveling of symptoms right and then if it would at least with my my short experience with people with radiculopathies it's kind of like they get the initial flare-up of the localized lower back and then maybe a day later they have the the ridiculous symptoms going down the leg or the arm, regardless of where it is, right? And it's kind of like, this is getting worse, and I have no clue of what's going on. And Raul and I talk about this, we throw this around a lot, is just the aspect of unknowing just already sends you into the catastrophization, right? Like, you're just like, I'm done, I need to go to a doc. And then, you know, I don't know if it's the same over there, but, you know, the majority of people that go into a doctor's office, it's either going to be one or two things. One, you're going get, to get kind of like pushed off, like this isn't that big of a deal, it's a radiculopathy, go on, but they don't give you time and explain it. Or you have the prototypical American chiropractor saying, okay, your herniation is the size of a bowling ball and I'm going to need you here three times a week for the next eight years because I care about your spine. 
you know? So I think that's, it's not the main driving force, but that's a component that needs to be said, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. And then that's a, you need this for, you need this for eight years or so-and-so is going to happen. And I've actually had a patient, we talk about this a lot and this kind of story gets told a lot. And I physically had a patient about three weeks ago who was told 10 years ago that if she didn't, didn't have XYZ treatment, she would end up in a wheelchair. And, and you're just like, you know, and she just had some lower back pain. That was it, you know, and she's been protective of her back for 10 years because she was told, and this person who told her this actually wasn't a chiropractor, but it's still the same thing. It doesn't matter who it was. It was still said to her. And I was just like, you know, we talk about this a lot and it was just, and she's been terrified for 10 years that she's going to have a back problem, end up in a wheelchair. It's awful. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I I have another question (laughs) that there's probably not, not a right answer, but I ask it to every single (laughs) intelligent, (laughs) intelligent clinician there. I know that I know. And, and the question is, so why low back pain, right? Why is low back pain the world's leading disability factor why is it the most common msk pain why not the neck or the shoulder or, or the mid back and i know there's no right or wrong answer but i just want to see like your thought process uh, as to why do you think that is i think beliefs is a big part of it and i think that catastrophization and that chronicity element lends itself to that um firstly so a i think you know acute back pain generally lasts longer than acute knee pain, acute ankle pain, because that catastrophization. I think then also people are more likely to seek help for it. They're more likely to go and see someone about it because of their beliefs. You know, they might think that this is bad. Oh, if I don't fix this now, it's always going to be a problem. I don't want to end up in a wheelchair. So they're more likely to present to someone with it who then potentially could catastrophize those beliefs further. And I think that's kind of the reason. Um, you know, back pain as to why it happens, you know, I don't know if you saw that, that graph that went around a few, you know, a few weeks ago of the multitude of reasons for back pain. There's billions, you know, there's not, it's so, so multifactorial. We can't really blame it. If you'd asked us 10 years ago, we probably would have said, because everyone sits too long and their posture is awful. We now know it's a bit bigger than that. Um, But I think that also people's, people are sedentary and then they are not doing as much as they should be. You know, we're protecting our spines. We're not using them as much as we should be because of those myths and things which get have been filtered down again and again and again don't lift don't bend when actually we should be you know people are squatting and lunging and walking around but just by climbing the stairs they're not really flexing and bending their spines under load anywhere near as much as they are probably their lower limb maybe just a just hypothesis yeah the, the uh, you know the, the person the gym who says i can't i can't deadlift because i've got a bad back probably doesn't have much trouble picking up that you know, crate of 24 beers at, at the supermarket or, or um, I don't know, lifting a, a bed for a mate. Um, it, it's sort of that, that context thing. I mean, I mean, for me, Raul, I'm going to keep it super simple. We've only got one back. We've only got one lower back. If you've got a problem with your knee or ankle or hopefully. hip, you hobble. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Um, but there's no, so, so, because all the stats are for reported or people seeking help. Um, so if you've got a problem with your elbow, wrist, shoulder, knee, I'm not going to go along and name everything that we've got two of, um, uh, but you can generally kind of like last out a week or so with it being relatively um, uh, moderate in pain and allow your body to heal because you can chill it out. And I've just hopped into work today. You know, I've, I've got here. It's only a bad knee. I've, I've just swung my shoulder up in a, in a neck scarf or something like that to, you know, get me through the day. 
and it allows the body to do its natural thing. It allows it to heal and, and decrease and go through that inflammatory cycle and, and actually slowly get a bit of movement back in. So perhaps these issues don't get reported as much because we can get away with them comparative to the lower back where you've only got one. And if it's, if you've got a, a really, um, a really, really hot disc or some jammed up facets, you're, you're pretty fucked. Like sometimes you can't do much. Um, so I think, you know, you, you search for help, you know, as soon as possible. You, you try and get that uh, rectified to allow you to go on with life. Whereas a, a bum knee, if you've blown a, a meniscus or, or torn a bit of um, uh, collateral ligament, you can get away with hobbling around for a good few weeks. In fact, often to your detriment, but you can get away with it for so much longer. Possibly that could be something to do with it. And it's probably less impactful on your normal activities of daily living. You know, yeah. you can, you, I said you can hobble around, you can, you can make do, whereas when you've got an acute back, getting it out of car, you know, turning over in bed, sleep, all those little things which you do are probably impacted a bit more as well. So and that's likely going to lead to potentially, I mean, again, I'm hypothesizing here, potentially more catastrophization, early seeking of help, all those things which you know doesn't actually help in the long term. Mm. Nailed it. Yeah, I would agree with everything you just said. I always utilize the story of like, okay, you have two patients with the same pathology, you know, let's just say a knee injury. One's a professional soccer player while the other one's a professional violinist. One's going to have a dramatic effect on their daily like activities of life while the other one's like, nah, I can hobble around as long as my hands are okay, I can play this tune, right? But with the back, regardless if you're a soccer player or a violinist, depending on how you're sitting, you're still going to be reminded that, hey, I'm going through this healing process within my back, you know? Yeah, exactly. Love that. I like that. Yeah. With, with uh, you know, I, I love to hear this because, you know, with all the experience that you both have, like, what is the most common thing that you are debunking? Like when somebody walks in, like maybe it might be core stability, maybe it's the whole disc slipping thing. But what is like the most like one where you kind of like, can we please just put this to rest, you know? Well, I think the first one is probably posture that we kind of touched on before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's yeah, because everybody you mentioned posture and everyone does this, don't they? And I've just sat up straight and pinned my shoulders <laughs> back and everyone goes, oh, it's probably my posture. People blame posture a lot on pain and for many reasons you spoke about before. So I love talking about that one and I love giving patients kind of permission to slouch. Yeah, that's, quite, that's quite a big one. Um, the bone back into place, you know, pelvis goes out of in and out of place is a big one we hear. Or you, know, you can't bend your back. I know those kind of three we spoke about. What other ones do we speak about? Um, pain, pain doesn't equal damage. That's quite a big one. Um, mm. That talking about patients' fears that the more pain they're in, the more damage they're in, or you know that the level of pain that they're in justifies that they've actually done some serious harm. And that's quite a good one to help patients realise that actually pain doesn't equal damage, and you can have immense pain and no damage. And the analogies that, that we've spoken about on the podcast and we've used a lot are. Well, first, you, you can have pain with damage. You know, I can stab you with a fork now and, it you know, it bloody hurts. Um, or, you know, you can have uh, something like phantom limb pain where you can have pain without a body part. And you can even, there's even stories of people born without body parts who having pain in that body part. So you, then you can have, you know, pain without a body part or pain without damage. You can then have damage without pain as well. Something like you can rupture blood vessels in the eye, you know, which is damage, but it doesn't actually cause any pain. Um, and you can have immense pain without damage. Also, something like a migraine. You, know, you can have immense pain. You know, I'll give you some of the worst pain that you can imagine. And nothing happens before, nothing happens afterwards. And it can last for an hour and then go away with no effects afterwards. Yes, I know there's a, 
a few residual effects kind of post migraine, but you know, there's nothing structurally wrong. And kind of getting patients to realize this in the migraine example or brain freeze when they've eaten something cold is another example. Yeah. That's another light bulb moment. And people kind of go, oh, actually, that is true. I did have that. Or I did pick up a bruise the other day. So getting to understand that, that the pain doesn't necessarily equal damage is a good one um, that, I, that I like talking about with patients as well. And, and there's lots of analogies around pain and there's lots of, you know, whether it's a fire alarm or, a, you know, a toaster setting up a fire alarm, there's lots of analogies that we've used with patients before and i'm sure you've done similar ones as well uh that again just help to you know help the patient to realize it and again it's trying to get that light bulb moment that that's when the patient can really take it home and explain to their friends that well actually did you know that you know you can have a migraine and there's no uh there's no long-lasting effects and there's no tissue damage uh, and then that's when you know they've really understood it you, you took my question. I was just like, how do you go about it? You know, I, one of the things I always jump to is just like, um, so I work in the VA medical system right now as an intern. And in order for you to see the chiropractor, you have to get like a plethora of images. And of course, with every image, there's going to be a doctor explaining the impressions. Every single patient, about 90% of them will sit down and say, well, I'm here because I have disc degeneration disease. Like, you know, they're using like the high top dollar words and like, you know, really scared about it, that type of thing. And like, or like I have a herniated disc, I have a bulging disc. And one of the ways I kind of do it is I say, you know, it's funny. I probably have the same amount of bulging disc as you do, you know, with all my history. And they go, what do you mean by that? It's like, well, and I try to explain where like, you know, damage doesn't necessarily mean pain and pain doesn't necessarily mean damage. And like when it comes down to it, when it comes to bulging of the disc and maybe not herniation, but it's the aging process of the body. And when they kind of start putting two and two together, it kind of opens up the door a little bit. Um, and I like the migraine. I, I'm going to put that migraine one in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah. I, I use phantom Good. phantom limbs seem to have really resonated well with a lot of people. I guess that everyone knows about it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it's a common example, but, and I think that, yeah. And I think people are aware of it. I think probably people understand a migraine more because most people are aware of a headache. Um, whereas, you know, phantom limb pain, I've had half of people say, I don't know what phantom limb pain is. Uh, maybe working in the VA, it's probably people are a bit more aware of that. Um, mm. but you know, I have had people say that. So I kind of use both, um, both kind of examples, but then that kind of brings on to another myth. That we talk about a lot which is the kind of the mri scans you know which is a whole mm. i know that dave and i've spoken about this a lot on various kind of topics is that you know hatred that we kind of seem to have developed you know and it gets such a bad rap doesn't it mri scans i don't know if dave you want to talk about your love slash <laughs> love slash hatred of <laughs> mri scans oh it's a tough one i mean uh, so in the uk it certainly wouldn't be a, a normal um uh a routine thing for an MRI pain uh, for MRIs for people with back pain it, it would tend to be uh, once you're further along a, um, a, a process so the thing for us is uh, so we're um, are moderators of a group called the back pain and sciatica support group UK or the sciatica and back pain support group UK um, and we get a lot of sort of um, MRI comparisons so someone will say this is my MRI who knows what this is and everyone else puts their pictures on and you know my bulge is bigger than your bulge and all that sort of like stuff snap, and it's, isn't it but with MRI uh, that's yeah. it oh i had one of those uh, and it's so <laughs> tough and almost if people read through the comments it would actually be the perfect example of damage doesn't equal pain 
because some people say, well, mine's bigger, but my, I don't have as much pain as you. And some people say, oh, I've got loads more pain than that, but mine's only teeny tiny. Um, or they're quite dismissive. Oh, that's only a small one. You know, mine's bigger. Therefore, I must have had more pain. You, it's sort of a self. Um, it actually shows people that they're wrong in that size would equal pain. Just the, the varied nature of the reports. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not a, um, a normal or a, a routine thing for most people in the UK to have an MRI pre-back pain. The problem is, of course, not the image, because the image is uh, just the gold standard way of looking at a spine. It's the reporting, like you said, degenerative disc disease. But actually, when we call it normal wear and tear or age-related um, uh, issues, well, that, that's not such a problem. When we say, look, I've probably got some disc bulge as well, because I've been busy being a human over the last 35 years. So I probably have a few bold is that's okay um then that's the most important part whereas if they're part of a systematic mri process and like you said that you just get an mri because that's what happens some doc comes in and says yeah l4 bulge l5 bulge um that'll be your pain see you later next mm -hmm. that's where the problem starts so we don't correlate that with the patient's pain and presentation it's got to be part of that overall picture um we always use a fantastic or uh robin often uses, uses a fantastic analogy where uh trying to guess where pain is coming from an mri is like trying to guess who is the drunkest out of a picture at a wedding it's a fantastic educated guess you can say well that person's on the floor but you can't see the whole night you can't see the whole picture um and i think that's so important when you fit that mri with the history of the patient with the um uh, findings mechanically and with any test findings as well then yeah of course that's an incredibly important part of that diagnostic process but just to look at that and say oh l4 l5 this bulge that's the problem see you later people then hold on to that and actually it could be so multifactorial it could have nothing to do with their problem often i've seen people with an l4 5 disc bulge let's say um and they're saying yeah that's the cause of my pain and i go wicked and i read their mri and I say that's on the other side though what do you mean oh well that, that's on the other side your pain's on the left side yeah yeah well you've got a bulge on the right side of your leg Right, but it's that you know it's just not been looked at. They've just ticked that off the sheet. That's the problem there. That's why. Um, so I think it is a fantastic tool, and it can be used really, really well as part of a correlated report, or it can absolutely send us down the wrong path, and we end up creating a, a nocebic response and actually just a real uh, negative time to the patient. Mm -hmm. Was that a yeah. question? I think I went off on one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, what I was thinking just as you were talking about is like, you know, all these things that can really influence low back pain and a lot of it can be not a lot of it, a good portion of it could be remedied by great education and good patient adherence. Right. And, you know, we always talk about the low hanging fruit, you know, are you sleeping correctly? Is your, your nutrition relatively, you know, does it reflect a goal of yours and how's your stress? Um, very easy to ask those questions. Very easy to say, oh, this person's not getting enough sleep and he's clearly stressed or she's very stressed. But how do y'all go about it? How are we going to systematically improve somebody's sleep slash stress slash nutrition to help maybe recover or be more resilient to future injuries? Good question. I don't know if I've I've asked this. Don't know if I've been asked this question before. Yeah. Um, sleep's a good one. Um, you know, I, I sleep something I, I ask about a lot. And since having a child, and you know, your sleep is so disrupted, you can't really change it. You know, in those first few years, it's just shit. The, you just accept that it's shit. 
I've kind of appreciated how important sleep is a lot more. And I don't think until you until you can't sleep, you don't know how important it is. Oh, really, it's one of those things you kind of take for granted. And so it's something I've asked a lot about now. And you kind of when you've got a new mum, it's something you kind of have to you, you take it quite lightly. You just assume that they're going to be sleeping shit. Um, and talking to new mums and new parents about sleep, you know, it, it's a challenging one. A lot of people find it quite difficult to talk about, um, especially if they're having a really bad time. So it's something that has to be kind of approached with caution. But I'll often, if that, that aside, talk about things like screen time. You know, how are you sleeping now? Okay, yeah, I've always been a poor sleeper. Okay, what's your caffeine intake like? Do you, are you drinking much caffeine after after 12 p.m. You know, or 12 lunchtime? We know that the half-life of caffeine is, is 12 hours long. So if you're having a shot of coffee at midday, at midnight, there's still a quarter of that shot still going through your bloodstream. And you'd be, you know, you wouldn't lie there in bed at midnight and have a slurp of a cup of coffee and then expect to sleep well. So, you know, that's, you know, a big part of it. Screen time before bed, you know, what, you know, are you sat in your bed, you know, sat on Facebook, you know, are you getting these kind of quick dopamine releases from your phone before you go to bed? You know, can you turn your, turn your phone off? Can you get it out of the bedroom? Are you watching TV in your bedroom? Can you get that out? You know, are you completely getting rid of screen times now before bed? Are you sat, in, sat down reading a book? You know, are you stressed before bed? Could you meditate? Use something like Headspace, those apps. Um, so I kind of, there's lots of little things there, which I kind of approach depending on their, on their lifestyle. Nutrition wise, you know, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist. So I kind of, I said, go for the low hanging fruit. You know, are they eating a load of shite? Basically, you know, right. can they improve that? Can they just, my methodology is add in some good stuff, you know, don't have to you know overhaul your whole diet tomorrow that's not really my not my area of expertise but i know enough that you know you can have a couple more bananas and have a couple more avocados every day and that's probably gonna pay some dividends and if you start adding in the good stuff it will eventually start outweighing the bad stuff and that's my kind of approach is is, is pretty keep it simple dave i don't know if you have anything else on on that yeah, so I always use the holiday analogy with people. So one of the hardest things is relating the sleep or nutrition side of things then to pain, because that's a different thing, right? That's not to do with my back pain. That's different. Um, I always say to people, look, think about how you feel when you've got back from a two-week like like hardcore holiday. You've been drinking every day. You've not been sleeping properly. You've been eating exactly what you want to, not what you should do. How do you feel on that first Monday back to work? You, you feel subpar, right? Pretty atrocious. Um, now, that tends to be when people are will get a cold or maybe they've got a cold sore. That's, that's a really common thing. Or spots or eczema or psoriasis. And often people relate that really easily. Again, I think it's because we can visualize it and they say, oh, yeah, but it's because I'm run down, right? I'm run down. And actually, so that's the cold sore or psoriasis. That's your body's inability to heal quick enough to fight off that virus or to heal quick enough to, to decrease your um, uh, ability to fight off the sebaceous cyst or whatever it is. So but they, we relate that as, oh, it's because I'm tired. I always get a cold sore when I'm tired because I'm run down. Well, actually, if your body's not healing quick enough to fight off a cold sore virus, a herpes virus, it's probably not healing quick enough to really well heal your irritated facet or your uh, hypertonic muscles around that area, et cetera, et cetera. So it's trying to sort of, again, bring it into the forefront of something that we can see, we can relate to, and we can acknowledge. Think about how bad you feel after a holiday. Do you think you're healing on that Monday morning? Hell no. So let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about nutrition. And again, I'm a new dad, just like Rob. Um, so I'm not going to sit there and say that I'm the uh, the perfect example. But if you do try and get that bit a bit better sleep, try to cut back on those inflammatory diet products. Do you know what? You're going to heal quicker. And let's take it to the crux of the matter. This is the UK. So you're going to pay me less. 
when you say those magic words, people's eyes light up and they think, oh, that, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, so we've got that on our sides, at least. Do you want to pay me less money? How about an extra hour of sleep a night? It's that simple. I mean, look, for strength, how many guys spend 60 quid on a tub of pre-workout, but they still sleep four hours a night, had two hamburgers, and then went out on the beers? Like, all they had to do was get eight hours of sleep and drink a bit of water every now and again. And they wouldn't Bro need science, a bloody tub. Of, that's it. Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't need to dry scoop two tubs, uh, two scoops of pre-workout before every time. Um, so it's trying to get, like you said, that low-hanging fruit, but trying to bring it into. But actually, this could have an effect because it's so different in most people's mentality. But if it's when you get run down, if you get a spot, well, of course, right? My body's in in clip. But actually, the same with, works with your back. Oh, holy shit! That could be appropriate. Um, so yeah, trying to bring it into the fold is a, is a tough one sometimes. That's another one. It's going to go in my back pocket. I love the idea <laughs> of, of anchoring a physical appearance and a, something that everybody experiences as to, you know, cause everyone talks about it. Like, you know, or for example, in a student's mind is, oh, of course I'm getting sick. It's exam time. It's like, well, that's <laughs> high levels of stress. Your body is, is, you know, not able to keep up with the demand that you're placing on it. I like that a lot. Yeah. I'm gonna put that in my back pocket for sure. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And that, that cold example is a good one. You know, if you talk about that, whether it's a cold or like, you know, you get the sniffles or you got a bit of a flu, you know, those type of things often when you're run down and you can treat back pain a, a like that. You know, if, if you have people get colds, you know, every winter, you know, if you if you assume that someone gets a cold every winter, they get a bit under the weather once a year, you get a lot of people who have back pain once a year as well. And you can treat back pain very similar. You know, you're not, if you have a cold once a year, you're not a cold patient. You know, you're not a, a patient who has, you know, has a problem with colds. You're someone that has a cold once a year and you can use that with back pain. You know, you're not, you don't have an, an injured chronic back problem. You just have a flare up of some back pain once a year, just like when you get a cold. Uh, and, you know, what do you do when you get a cold? You might go to the pharmacy, you might get some some nose spray, you might get some Lemsip tea and you, you look after it for a bit. And then once mm. it's gone, you get rid of all that stuff and then you carry on as normal back pain is the same you have a flare-up you know what you have to do to manage it you might do some you might change your training a bit you might go out for a few more walks you might get up from the desk a bit and walk you might take some painkillers and then once it's gone you then go back to normal you're not in this kind of chronic cycle all the time where you are a back pain patient and you need long-term care it's just managing it there and then it all comes back down to like, you know, the conceptions of, you know, today's society, right? Like where, you know, if we actually looked at a back pain patient as just like, oh, you have the flu or you have a cold, it, it just it kind of cuts out that whole aspect of what's wrong with me. Why is it getting worse or why is it not getting better? What so on and so forth. I, me personally, like if I'm sick, I don't really even go further with it. I'm like, all right, I'm sick. All right, I got the next three days is going to suck and I will be fine after that. And you just, you just you just embrace it, don't you? You just you just aware of it, and everyone everyone's been there and done that once, and they know what what the deal is. I, I, you know what? That's that, that's a really great. I'm, it's either you're going to do a post or I'm going to do a post, and it's just going to be like, why can't we treat low back pain like it's a flu? Or, or it's like the cold. It. I'm already planning it in my head. Actually, oh, that's a really it's, good yours. Idea. it's yours. It's yours. <laughs> yeah. I'll share we it. We can we can both share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you know good. that. That, that brings me to, I guess, like, you know, the last talking point, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, is, you know, we're all content creators and we all had the same goal of trying to educate the, the general population. So they're not getting shafted by American chiropractors or other chiropractors in that same line of thinking. Um, where, where do you uh, maybe garner your 
inspiration because I feel like there's some things where we kind of just repeat ourselves. It's like, all right, how do I repackage this idea? Because I feel like you guys didn't grasp it the first time around. So, yeah, what do you get? Um, they they come to me in the shower, you know, those type of things. They went like Instagram. That's also a good one. Um, and it might be often I'll get things that have come up from discussing it with a patient. That's quite a good one. Um, you know, something that's come up like we might use the cold analogy, and then I think, oh. That's a really good idea. And I just have a notes app on my phone. And I literally, every time I have an idea, I write it. Or it might be based on someone else's, um, someone else might do a post. And I go, oh, that answers this question I was thinking about. And then I flip that into in, into a kind of into a post. So that's kind of the idea. But I think often, especially for our podcast, because it's patient focused, it will come around conversations which we've had in, in the clinic. You know, we had a conversation two weeks ago with a patient who's asking about osteoporosis. So I was like, oh we, oh, we haven't done a podcast on osteoporosis, you know, and she asked a few okay. questions, which then I then relayed to the to the chap I was speaking to about osteoporosis. So that's kind of when we get the ideas. And then I kind of think, OK, who's the go to expert on that topic, whether that's deadlifting, whether it's exercise, whether it's osteoporosis. And I just reach out to them and say, cool, we're patient focused. You want to talk to some patients on on your expertise and we haven't had anyone say no yet so that's maybe we haven't asked the right people but we haven't had anyone say no so that's always a good uh, always a good start do you guys find similar you're just charming yeah obviously it's, it's the britishness yeah. <laughs> raul so uh you know i'll let raul take the the floor here when it comes to acquiring podcast guests because it, without him this podcast would just be me screaming at the mic and him just kind of like yeah i agree man you know that type of thing so raul how do you go about like acquiring the top-notch guests that we get um so i don't think about specific topics i just like i i I just email or DM people that I really look up to and I tell them like, Hey, I love your work. I love what you do. I host this podcast. Would you love to be on? And if you're a good guy and you send them a good message, nine times out of 10, they're going to say yes. Um, we haven't had anyone tell us no. Um, and we've been really lucky uh, with the, some good guests that we've had on, but it, yeah, it's just reaching out to people saying like, Hey, you want to chat for an hour? Shoot the shit. And they're going to say yes, honestly. It's good fun. You know, the, the, the one thing that I think everyone here can um, really uh, get, get down with is like, and I'll be doing something, like I'll be in the middle of something. I'll be like, that's a great idea. And the biggest lie I always tell myself is I'll remember it later. I'll remember it, you know? And then you go back to like, maybe write it down or actually do the idea. And you're just so frustrated because it's like, it's gone forever. <laughs> I think I've got, yeah, you, I use the notes app on my phone and I don't know how many topics I've got in there, but I just have a scrolling list of hundreds of things and I keep forgetting that I've done one. So I go, oh, that's a good one. Oh no, I did that last week or I already <laughs> made a post about that or, you know, it'd be an idea that, you know, so just documenting on that or using something like Evernote, I find has pretty, been pretty useful actually. Well, I think, I think it might be time to do the, the wrapping up of the wrapping up podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So where could everybody find you if they're looking to, to learn more about your podcast or your content online? Well, we are on available on all, all of the social media platforms, anywhere you can find us at the back pain podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, on, I think on Twitter, we're at the back pain pod. Cause obviously at the back pain podcast wasn't available, but we're at, at the back pain pod. Um, and then obviously you can check out our podcast anywhere where you find podcasts, you can find us. Um, we are on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and Castbox and you know all all the places you find it. All so of if them. If you are, if you, all of them, where yeah, anywhere you can find us, 
As for ourselves, you can find me at Rob the Cairo on pretty much all, all the social medias as well. And Dave, you are? I'm across a smattering of platforms. However, uh, do contact Rob if you want anyone, any replies or anything useful back <laughs> other than uh, rude jokes and Disney porn. That's, that's, uh, that's about it. <laughs> you are great at that, though. So. <laughs> awesome awesome so we're going to tag all that we'll put it all in the show notes and uh we'll wrap this thing up awesome thanks so much for having us guys thanks so much guys